Hello, everyone. Just to let you know, we'll start the presentation in about one minute as we wait for everyone to get settled in. Hello, everyone. Once again, we'll start the presentation in about 30 seconds. We're just waiting for everybody to get settled in. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's Safety and Health webcast, Top 5 OSHA Safety Training Topics, Requirements and Best Practices for Safety and Health, sponsored by J.J. Keller. This is Alan Ferguson, Associate Editor at Safety and Health Magazine, and I'm moderating today's session. Thank you all for joining us, and we'll start the presentation in a couple minutes, but first, there are some housekeeping items. As a disclaimer, the views of today's speakers and organization are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the National Safety Council or Safety and Health Magazine. Any mention of a commercial enterprise product or publication does not mean the council or magazine endorses those items. After today's presentation, we'll conduct a question and answer session with our speakers. To ask a question, click the Q&A button at the bottom of your screen, type your question, and click the send button. Please feel free to ask your question at any time during this presentation. You don't have to wait for the Q&A to begin. We'll try to answer as many questions as possible, but we might not get to every question. The good news is that any unanswered questions will be forwarded to today's sponsor. Also, after this presentation, you'll be asked to complete a brief evaluation survey, and I'll tell you more about that a little bit later. This webcast will be archived, so you can access it after today's live event. To view this webcast and all of our past webcasts, please go to safetyandhealthmagazine.com events. With that, let's introduce our speakers. With us today are Trisha Hodkovich and Mark Stromey. Trisha is an EHS editor at J.J. Keller who provides content for safety and environmental related publications on topics such as hazard communication, hazardous waste operations and emergency response, bloodborne pathogens, spill prevention, Title III of the Superfund Amendments and Reauthorization Act, signs and labels, and written plans. Mark is a senior editor at J.J. Keller, focuses on OSHA construction and general industry regulations. Mark is an authorized OSHA outreach construction trainer and the lead editor in various J.J. Keller publications, including the OSHA Compliance for Construction Activities Manual and the Construction Regulatory Update Newsletter. Additionally, Mark develops content for online safety training and author authors numerous trade publication articles each year. Once again, we thank you all for tuning into this presentation. Tricia, whenever you're ready, go ahead and take it away. All right, thanks, Alan. And hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us. <clears throat> Today's webcast is sponsored by J.J. Keller Training. J.J. Keller Training solutions cover a broad range of topics and are available in a variety of formats. Training on demand, DVD, streaming video, video books, all of these to help you meet your needs. Backed by regulatory experts and using the latest techniques and technology, our training solutions give your employees the proper instruction they need. On behalf of our sponsor, thanks for joining us today. So safety training is critical to ensure employees know how to perform their jobs safely and without injury or illness. We're going to cover five training topics today, personal protective equipment, bloodborne pathogens, powered industrial trucks, hazard communication, and lockout tagout. These are what we like to call the bread and butter training topics. A lot of employers need to do training under these five topics. Hopefully, you'll walk away from this event knowing more about who should receive training, when training should or must be provided, and why providing that training is important. If you have regulatory or training questions during this hour, feel free to pose them in the uh, Q&A box. And we will also save time for Q&A, uh, Q&As at the end of the hour. Uh, Mark, uh, Mark will start us out with the first topic, personal protective equipment. All right, hey, thank you very much everybody for attending. Uh, we're gonna start out uh, pretty basic here regarding PPE. Uh, we're going to start with the hierarchy of controls that's been around for quite some time. Uh, let's start with the basic idea of controlling a hazard at, at its source, which, as we all know, 
is the best way to protect employees. Elimination and substitution, you know, they're the most effective at reducing hazards. They also tend to be the most difficult to implement in an existing process. However, if the process is still at the design or development stage, uh, these two will probably be inexpensive and simple to implement, but for an existing process, major changes in equipment and procedures may be required to eliminate or substitute for a hazard. So if a work environment can be physically changed to prevent employee exposure to the potential hazard, then the hazard can be reduced with an engineering control. What would some of those be? How about a built-in barrier or an isolation space? Keep in mind, these are independent of worker interactions, which is important. The initial cost of these controls can be higher than the cost of administrative or PPE. But if you think about it, over the longer term, operating costs are frequently lower and in some cases can provide cost savings in other areas of the process. Now, if employees can change the way they do their jobs and exposure to the potential hazards removed, then the hazard can be reduced with a work practice control. What would some of those be? Uh, how about using a wet method to control dust? You're, you're doing uh, housekeeping, you're providing maintenance, you're inspecting processes and control equipment. And then finally, administrative controls. Now these require an employer or a worker to do something. This can include training workers to understand warning signage related to the hazard, or the employer reduces the time an employee is exposed to the hazard. Now these controls can be relatively inexpensive to establish, uh, but over long, long term, very costly to sustain they've been proven to be less effective than other measures. And on top of all that, they require significant uh, effort by affected workers. Going on, well, now we're gonna talk about the PPE aspect. So when these other types of controls that were on that previous slide are not feasible or, or don't provide sufficient protection, employers must provide personal protective equipment to their employees and on top of that, ensure that it's being used. Now, what is PPE? Well, we all have ideas about that, but it's equipment worn to minimize exposure to a variety of hazards. What would some of these types of PPE be? How about gloves? How about foot and eye protection, protective hearing devices, hard hats, respirators? Keep in mind though, PPE is a critical and the last line of defense against exposure two hazards. An important aspect of all this as we're talking about training is the employer has to provide training to each employees who is required to use that PPE. Now, what, what does a training entail? It, it requires the employer to train on when PPE is necessary, what PPE is necessary, how to properly don, off, adjust, and wear that PPE, very important, also the limitations of the PPE and proper care and maintenance of the PPE. Now, note that the elements that are above there are listed in 1910-132 OSHA's 29 CFR standard. They're the general PPE training requirements. Keep in mind respiratory protection has a completely different set of requirements and training elements. So you can see on the screen, 1910-134-K is the respirator training paragraph. So we're not gonna cover those in the slide and you'll wanna visit that citation if you're doing training for respiratory protection. So re retraining an employee, we get a lot of questions on this. Uh, and when the employer has reason to believe that any affected employee who's already been trained for some reason, they don't understand the training, they forgot it, they forgot the skill required, then the employer has to retrain that employee. Circumstances where that retraining is required uh, are on the screen, but they're not limited to these. So what would they be? Changes in the workplace that render previous training obsolete. Changes in the types of PPE to be used. 
or inadequacies in a affected employee's knowledge, or the use of assigned PPE indicate that, you know, the employee just either forgot it or somehow something happened and they're not using it properly. They didn't retain the information that you provided them initially. If you're looking for up-to-date consistent training on PPE, JJ Keller Training provides employees with required PPE training and or retraining. Formats include DVD, video training book, stream line, streaming video and online training course formats. So since uh, JJ Keller Training is a sponsor of today's webcast, when you ask for more information today in our polls, uh, you'll also receive a complimentary white paper providing PPE and ensuring its use. So please use the poll on your screen to select your interest. We'll give you some time to make your selections. In the meantime, uh, Tricia, let's, uh, let's take a question. Um, what Do you have a question for me? Yeah, uh, sure. So a number of great questions have rolled in already. So thank you, everyone. Uh, Mark, uh, one attendee asks, how do you determine what types of PPE are needed? That is an excellent question and one we get a lot. Now, as a matter of fact, we had that earlier today uh, through one of our inboxes here at Keller. So take a look at 1910-132 paragraph D. This is where OSHA requires general industry employers to first perform what is called a hazard assessment. And you'll, you know, you'll inspect and, and do a hazard analysis of your workplace. And what you're looking for are what hazards are present or are any likely to be present. So once you do that and you make sure that you are very thorough, it's because OSHA really cares about this, uh, you'll select the types of PPE that will provide affected employees protection from the hazards you've identified. So there's some requirements there at 132. Document your hazard assessment with a written certification. That's a requirement. Communicate your selection uh, decisions to your employees. Select PPE that fits each affected employee and be sure those employees use the PPE. Very important. Just because you give it to them, you, sometimes they're not really that uh, happy to have to use it, but you do, it's a requirement. You, you make them use it. Uh, refer to a helpful appendix for more guidance on this. It's uh, Appendix B of 29 CFR 1910I. So with that said, I'm going to turn it over to Tricia. Excellent, Mark. So thank you. Bloodborne pathogens is our next topic. The phrase bloodborne pathogens, it sounds like something out of a medical book, and it was until 1991 when OSHA published a regulation under the same name, 29 CFR 1910.1, uh, excuse me, 1030 is meant to protect general industry and shipyard workers from exposure to hepatitis B, HIV, and other microorganisms that are transmitted through blood or certain other body fluids. The regulation covers over 700,000 employers and not just those in the healthcare industry. This regulation can apply to many in the manufacturing, service, government, and other industries. In fact, about 44% of bloodborne pathogen citations last fiscal year went to industries other than healthcare. Even though the regulation has been around for years, it's still one of the most cited with about 1,400 violations each calendar year on average. So this is another good reason to focus on this training topic today. According to the regulation, and I'm quoting, the employer shall train each employee with occupational exposure. So, end quote there. Uh, OSHA jurisdiction extends only to employees. It does not extend to unpaid students, for example, who are not employees. Also, it makes no difference whether the employee is full-time, part-time, contract, or temporary. An employee is covered by the training requirements if he or she has occupational exposure. So you, you should refer to Temporary Worker Initiative 
or TWI bulletin number six for information on temp workers and bloodborne pathogens. Uh, an exposure incident is actual contact with blood or other potentially infectious material, OPIM, whereas occupational exposure is reasonably anticipated contact with blood or OPIM. Uh, now, in addition to being reasonably anticipated, the contact must result from the performance of an employee's duties. You likely would not reasonably anticipate an, an office worker to have contact with blood or OPIM, but if you designate the office worker to perform first aid involving blood-related injuries of coworkers, then that employee is considered to have occupational exposure. 1910.1030, does not cover Good Samaritans. Uh, no employer can anticipate Good Samaritan acts, so no employer can anticipate these types of exposures. Anyone who voluntarily assists a person at work is not covered unless they are designated or expected de facto to assist workers. Unfortunately, OSHA does not tell you what jobs or tasks have occupational exposure, so you have to make a determination whether your workers, uh, whether they're housekeepers, maintenance workers, security personnel, or any others have occupational exposure by definition. The occupations on this slide uh, give you some examples. They may have occupational exposure, but not necessarily in all cases. You may be wondering if one of your staff members is qualified enough to provide the training well, you need a trainer that's knowledgeable in the subjects covered by the training elements listed in the regulation. And this trainer must also be familiar with how the training elements relate to your workplace. You don't have to have a healthcare professional do the training, but an OSHA inspector will look at the specialized courses, degrees, or work experience of your trainer if that inspector finds any deficiencies in your training program. If there's no one qualified at your location, you may need to send workers out to get trained or bring a trainer in as long as that trainer meets the qualifications. While the provisions for employee training are performance oriented, they are flexible to allow you to tailor your program to an employee's background and responsibilities. The training elements listed in paragraph G2VII of the Bloodborne Pathogen Standard must be covered at a minimum, and some elements call for site-specific information. Uh, the training elements relate to the items that are listed on this slide. Information and training are required at three points in time. At the time of initial assignment to tasks with occupational exposure, and this means prior to being placed in positions where occupational exposure may occur, uh, at least annually thereafter, and this means at least once every 12 months within a period not exceeding 365 days, uh, and, and training should be provided on a date reasonably close to that anniversary date. If the annual refresher cannot be completed by the anniversary, you should maintain a record indicating why the training is delayed and when the training will be done. Also train when changes affect an employee's occupational exposure. Changes include modification in tasks or procedures or the institution of new tasks or procedures. That additional training may be limited to addressing the new exposures created. Ensure you provide bloodborne pathogens information and training at no cost to the employee during paid working hours. Other considerations in how to train. Comprehension. The regulation says your training content and vocabulary must be appropriate to your trainee's education level, literacy, and language. Format. Audiovisuals, classroom instruction, interactive video, and online and computer-based training are good training tools that can be used as part of an effective training program. However, training the employee solely by means of a film or video without the opportunity for a discussion would constitute a violation. Similarly, generic online or computer programs, even an interactive one, um, that is not sufficient unless the employer supplements the training with 
uh, the site-specific information that's required, and a trainer is accessible for interaction. During training, it is also critical that trainees have an opportunity to ask questions and receive answers where material is unfamiliar to them. Uh, training, uh, trainees must have direct access to a qualified trainer during the training. However, the trainer does not need to be in the room. Uh, OSHA's requirement can be met if trainees have direct access to a trainer by way of a telephone hotline. Now, email is not considered direct access unless the trainer is available to answer emailed questions right at that time the questions arise. Sufficient hands-on training is also important because it allows a trainee to interact with equipment and tools in the presence of a qualified trainer and gives the trainer a chance to assess whether the trainees have mastered the proper techniques. Records of bloodborne pathogens training are not confidential and they're kept for at least three years from the training date. Training records may be stored on site where they will be accessible for review. Providing bloodborne pathogens training is it, it's not just, it doesn't just make compliance sense, it makes common sense. An employee's health depends on receiving proper training on the job. Once your trainees understand bloodborne pathogens hazards, taking safety measures will be a routine part of their jobs. The key is to train them before they are called in to take action involving anticipated contact with blood or OPIM. And that way, they can make the right decisions to safeguard themselves and their coworkers. All right, let's move on to powered industrial trucks. Very, very important training area. We get a lot of questions on this. So powered industrial trucks or PITs for short include forklifts, powered pallet jacks, stand-up rider lift trucks, order pickers, that type of thing. In fact, it's one major compliance issue. Some employers have failed to train operators on all the different types of PIT equipment that they operate. Even powered pallet jacks require training under 1910-178, and that training needs to be equipment specific. Now keep in mind, you don't necessarily have to train each operator on every pallet jack made by different manufacturers, but OSHA does prohibit allowing an operator who only has forklift training to operate a powered pallet jack without additional training. That's where that type of training comes in. OSHA requires a refresher training be conducted uh, under certain circumstances. Uh, there's no set frequency, but you do need to retrain when there's an accident or a near miss, when the operator is observed operating unsafely, when the operator is assigned to drive a different type of truck. Also, when a condition in the workplace changes in a way that could affect the safe operation of the trucker, or when an evaluation uh, reveals deficiencies, these are all pretty straightforward, but it's good to know that there are more than one uh, type of training criteria. And aside, of course, from the refresher training, OSHA requires all operators to undergo a performance evaluation at least every three years. Now, a lot of us have temporary employees that come into our facilities and what do we do about them? Uh, yes, you have to uh, train your uh, temporary employees. Now this TWI bulletin, we've got a few of these that we've sprinkled through this uh, webcast. Generally, the staffing agency is responsible responsible for the generic PIT training. And then the host employer provides a necessary site-specific training and evaluation. You know, that's because the host employer is of course more familiar with the equipment being used and they actually control the conditions at the work site. The training and evaluation should be the same for temp workers as that's provided to the host employer, employer's own employers at those same facilities. Now, if the staffing agency supplies trained power truck operators, you as a host employer have to verify that training. And the host employer must also conduct a workplace evaluation of each operator supplied by the staffing agency. 
The extent of the training and evaluation is based on the operator's past experiences. Maybe you've had them in your facility before, so you, you're familiar with you know, the, how they operate equipment. Um, and it may not need to be duplicated or as extensive as the initial training and evaluation. OSHA says that if the staffing agency is providing that training to those operators, uh, it's probably in the best position to keep training and evaluation records since they, they did it. Uh, in these cases, though, the host employer may choose but is not required to maintain or store additional copies of those training records. OSHA notes that the host employer must know where these records are um, located and they must be accessible to an OSHA compliance officer during an inspection. So it makes a lot of sense that you have them at your location. As a recommended practice, the host employer and staffing agency typically agree to share training records to make sure both parties are able to verify that training is in fact done. All right, what does OSHA require to be covered in the training? Now, these requirements are performance oriented. Uh, this permits employers to tailor that training program to the characteristics of their facility and worksite, and of course, to the types of trucks that they're operating. So we've listed uh, some sites, uh, excuse me, uh, truck related topics that must be covered. So if you look at these, it makes a lot of a sense uh, to, to cover these. Some apply, some may not apply, but uh, it's a pretty extensive list. Now, in a 1999 letter of interpretation, OSHA addressed uh, a question on whether truck-related training has to be weight and brand specific. And they went on to say, OSHA went on to say that the training isn't based on weight or brand, but, but instead on whether the trucks an employee operate differ with respect to any one or more of those truck-related topics. So that makes sense. Uh, weight and brand, that's not enough. It's if there's differences in the trucks that your employees are operating. All right, so in addition to that previous slide, OSHA um, has workplace specific topics that you must cover. We've listed them on the slide. In that same 1999 letter of interpretation, OSHA said that whether an operator that was trained and evaluated at one of an employer's facilities must receive additional training at another facility in these work uh, specific topics. And the key there is it depends on whether the two facilities differ with respect to any one or more of those topics. If all the potential hazards uh, at those facilities are the same, then no additional training or evaluation would be necessary. For example, where all your facilities have substantially similar ramps or narrow aisles, no additional training would be required. But additional training would be required if the loads to be carried at different facilities differ in composition or stability. And that makes a lot of sense. All right, now let's move on to uh, how to train. Now, not all regulations have requirements for training, conducting training, but the forklift is, is not like that. They do have uh, requirements, 1910.178. According to that reg, training must consist of a combination of formal instruction. What would that be? Well, lecture, discussion, interactive computer, learning, you'd watch a video, you could hand out written materials. But then of course we need practical training and that are, uh, consists of demonstrations performed by the trainer and practice exercises performed by the trainee. And then finally, very important, an evaluation of the operator's performance must be done in the workplace. So those are very, very important. That combination of training is very effective. Um, the reg also addresses duplicate training. There's no need for additional training in a specific copy topic if an operator has previously been trained on it. Uh, the training is appropriate to the truck and working conditions and the operator has been evaluated and found competent to operate the truck safely. All right. 
So what about the trainer? Now, this is another area that we get a lot of questions and the regulation is pretty vague, um, but OSHA did come into play with a lot of interpretation uh, that we'll discuss. So the reg says only that the trainer must have knowledge, training and experience necessary to conduct the training. OSHA said they left this intentionally performance oriented, believing the necessary qualification for the trainer could be obtained in several ways. What would those be? Uh, how about through years of operating a forklift and knowledge of safe practices and the OSHA regulations? That's one. Also going to a train the trainer class or a course like that. And then the other one is some combination of training and experience. So all three of those can be uh, very good sources of proving that your trainer is qualified. The only specific criteria OSHA lays out is found in a 2003 letter of interpretation. And I find this very interesting. It says the trainer must have operated the type of equipment they are training operators on so they can provide adequate instruction on how the equipment works, how it handles, that type of thing. The, the employer is required to designate someone that they feel can teach the safe operation principles in an understandable manner and ensure the fact that the operators do have the proper skill and knowledge before signing off on the certification. Now, not every forklift operator would be qualified to train employees. Some do not want to um, and don't have the, you know, the, the skills to do that. So be prepared to state to OSHA uh, as to why the person that you've chosen is a suitable trainer because they may in fact pass that when they come in for a visit. And then finally, before I turn it back over to Tricia, we're gonna talk about uh, training records. Uh, very important that you have these documentations and records in place. You must certify that each PIT operator has been trained and evaluated as required by the regulations. The certification, it's a written certification, must include the name of the operator, the date of the training and evaluation and the identity or identities of the person or persons performing the training or evaluation because sometimes there may be one that handles this uh, training. And with that, I'm gonna turn it over to Tricia. Thank you, Mark. So let's look at hazard communication. The hazard communication or HASCOM information and training provision at 1910.1200H1 is the most frequently cited, well, it has been for years, the most frequently cited serious OSHA training violation for general industry. It's generally OSHA's most wanted for training. Uh, recently, a company was cited for failing to provide effective HASCOM information and training for workers who were required to work with corrosive cleaning chemicals because one of the company's other locations was cited for a similar violation, the new violation was considered a repeat violation. So OSHA proposed a $60,000 fine. The longstanding HASCOM standard remains one of the most confusing OSHA regulations affecting over 5 million workplaces. Even before its changes based on the Globally Harmonized System or GHS in 2012, paragraph H was cited 2,000 to over 3,000 times every year. And we will examine the who, what, when, why, and how of the HASCOM training provision today. You must train all workers who may be exposed to hazardous chemicals under normal operating conditions or in foreseeable emergencies. Foreseeable emergency means any potential occurrence that could result in an uncontrolled release of a hazardous chemical. Uh, for contractors, the standard requires that the host and the contractor exchange information so each can train their own workers. Staffing agencies and host employers are jointly responsible for training temp workers. Staffing agencies must at a minimum provide generic training. The host employer holds the primary responsibility for training since it uses or produces chemicals, creates and controls the hazards and is best suited 
to provide temp workers with site-specific training. Refer to Temporary Worker Initiative, or TWI, bulletin number five, for information on temp workers and HASCOM. Office workers, bank tellers, and others who encounter hazardous chemicals only in non-routine, isolated instances are not covered. OSHA does not specify who can present HASCOM training, nor is any formal certification required to do so. You, the employer, are responsible for ensuring your workers are adequately trained, so you decide who's qualified to conduct training. OSHA does allow contractor-provided training. Training for each worker needs to cover the details of the written HASCOM program, and that includes information about shipped container labels and any workplace labeling system you use. For example, if in-house labeling includes HMIS or NFPA rating systems, workers must understand what these systems mean and how to utilize the information. If you still have hazardous chemicals labeled under the old HASCOM standard, the one prior to 2012, you must provide training on the different labeling systems to ensure that workers understand that the lack of pictograms or hazard statements and so on does not mean that the hazards don't exist. Workers must understand that the labeling system for shipped containers has changed since the purchase of these items. Ensure that workers are aware of where they can get all the information on the hazards of these chemicals. Another training element, safety data sheet or SDS requirements. This includes how to obtain and use the hazard information on an SDS, including the format. If you are maintaining material safety data sheets or MSDSs for products received prior to June 1st, 2015, you must cover the differences between MSDSs and SDSs and how to utilize the MSDS. Here we have the remaining training elements. What operations have hazardous chemicals, including byproducts? The location and availability of the written program, so chemical inventory and SDSs. How you monitor for hazardous chemicals, hazards of chemicals in the work area and measures workers can take to protect themselves like work practices, emergency procedures and personal protective equipment. Training is required at the time a worker is assigned to work with any hazardous chemical and whenever a new hazard is introduced into the worker's work area. The requirement for a, an employer to provide updated training is based on the hazard, not the chemical. So if someone is working with a flammable solvent and another flammable solvent is introduced, the training does not need to be updated. However, in this case, if a corrosive is introduced, the training needs to be updated. You may choose to initially train based on the chemicals. So if you have only a small number of chemicals, you may wish to discuss particular hazards of each chemical. If a new chemical has hazards that a worker has been trained on, no retraining occurs. If the new hazard, new chemical has a hazard the worker has not been trained about, retraining is limited to that hazard. In multi-employer sites, the employer is responsible for providing updated training when its workers are exposed to new hazards, even if these hazards are created by other employers. Refresher training is not required annually for HASCOM, but Providing training once, then assuming that years later workers are still knowledgeable is a risky assumption. It's wise to set up a system for periodic retraining. ASCOM training is a good thing. It ensures information is provided, explains and reinforces the information presented through labels and SDSs, and offers an opportunity for workers to ask questions. Training is required to be provided at no cost to workers, and workers must be paid for the time they spend at training. The training provisions are not satisfied solely by giving workers data sheets to read. Rather, your training program is to be a forum for explaining not only the hazards of the chemicals in the work area, but also how to use the information generated in the program. And this can be accomplished in many ways. 
audiovisuals, classroom instruction, interactive video, and online training are good examples. However, OSHA explains that workers must also have the opportunity to ask questions and receive timely responses. The training must be comprehensible. If you give job instructions in a language other than English, then the HASCOM training and information will also need to be conducted in that language. If employees have low literacy, uh, training must be provided so they can understand it, such as by oral instruction. Uh, as I said, you can either cover categories of hazards or specific chemicals. OSHA, is consi uh, OSHA consistently holds that training must be effective. OSHA inspectors often ask workers if they know the location of SDSs, if they can list the health effects of chemicals they work with, as well as what to do in an emergency. If workers cannot respond properly to these questions, even if the workers had been through documented training, OSHA can cite you. If you're interested in up-to-date, consistent HASCOM training content, JJ Keller offers a wide variety of in-depth and micro-learning programs covering not only HASCOM, but all workplace safety, transportation, and HR topics. Our sponsor, JJ Keller Training, would like to send you a complimentary white paper on HASCOM training uh, when you take part in our poll. So again, if you'd like more information on JJ Keller Training, please select your interests on the poll. And while you enter your selection, uh, let's take another question or two. Uh, we did have some bloodborne pathogens questions roll in. Um, I have one here. Uh, one attendee is asking, are volunteers covered by BBP or bloodborne pathogens? Uh, now, I know that sometimes employees volunteer, right, to be the point person for certain tasks or jobs, um, like first aid, for example. Um, so as employees, if they have occupational exposure, they're covered, all right, and, and need that full bloodborne pathogens training. On the flip side, though, possibly what this person is getting at, true volunteers, okay, so those who you don't pay and who are not employees, okay, um, they're not covered by the bloodborne pathogen standard, even if you anticipate exposure with blood or OPIM as part of their duties. Okay, so how about how about you, Mark? Sure, uh, we've got uh, somebody asking whether forklift operators need a valid driver's license. Very common question. And uh, here's the answer. No, your operators don't need a driver's license. Uh, they just need to be trained and certified to operate the forklift in the workplace. And of course, be performance evaluated every three years. So back to you, Tricia. Good answer. So, okay, you may be aware of uh, OSHA. Uh, they had issued a proposed HASCOM rule in, in last year, last February. Uh, changes are proposed throughout the regulation and mainly impact chemical manufacturers, importers, and distributors. But if the rule is finalized, it looks like employers will need to uh, maintain any uh, new SDSs and train employees about new hazard classifications related to aerosols, uh, desensitized explosives, and flammable gases. And those hazards, um, the hazards of these chemicals will not change, uh, but just their classification will be changing. And it will be required that employees understand these classifications before they uh, may be exposed to these chemicals at work. And also OSHA has not yet set a date uh, for that final rule. It could be months away or maybe to a year, something like that. Mark? All right. So we're going to do lockout tagout next. And that would be the final one for today before we take your questions. And please continue to send them in. We're getting some really good ones. Uh, you can send them in right now. You don't have to wait. Let's talk about uh, lockout tagout. Uh, you can see where they're found in 1910-147-C17. Who needs to be trained? 
But of, of course, remember this, your lockout tagout program is only as good as the training that you provide. And OSHA does require you to train employees based on their duties or exposures. Now, this depends on whether the employees are considered to be authorized, affected, or other. Now, of these three, authorized employees need the most training and the other category, the least. But in all cases, employees must understand the purpose and function of your energy control program. So authorized employees, they do the servicing, maintenance, and repair. They apply the locks or tags, and they follow the lockout tagout procedures that your company has established. Affected employees operate or use a machine. When a machine is down for servicing or maintenance, that employee, of course, can't run it. So he or she is affected by the equipment being locked out. Affected employees don't do any service or maintenance work, and they have to stay clear of the equipment while it's being repaired. And then the other category, those are employees whose work activities may be in the area where energy control procedures are being used. Now that we talked about the three types, let's talk about their levels of training. As we said, authorized employees need the most training. What do they need to be trained in? That's very, very important, uh, and it's in the standard. They must be trained to recognize hazardous energy sources, the type and magnitude of the energy available in the workplace, and they must know, of course, how to isolate equipment from its energy sources. The affected employees, well, what do you do there? You just train them to recognize a machine, machine malfunction, which they will probably know, and they need to uh, know who to report that problem too. It would probably be an authorized employee. Uh, the other employees, they're the ones who are walking around maybe in that area where lockout takeout's being used. And, you know, it's really simple with these uh, cat, this category. You just have to tell them, uh, don't try to restart or re-energize a machine or equipment when it's locked or tagged out. I don't know how many employees would want to even do that, but again, that's in the standard and you are required to train them on that. That would probably take about five minutes. Um, so temporary employees, we're still uh, talking about them. And here's another TWI bulletin. Uh, of course, these temp employees at your facility, they have to receive the same training as your permanent regular employees in, in TWI 10 there. OSHA states that the host employer is responsible for ensuring that if a temp worker is performing activities covered by the standard, they're properly trained and understand the lockout takeout policies and procedures. Other topics that you wanna cover, um, we have to talk about uh, takeout. That, you know, if we're just using tags um, or using tags and locks, the tags, really, they're just essentially a warning device. They don't provide any physical restraint like a lock does, and they're not to be removed without permission of the authorized person responsible for them. They should never be bypassed, ignored, or otherwise defeated. What, what the problem here is they evoke kind of a false sense of security, um, so you have to be really careful. Now, what about uh, the instruction that you have to give? Well. Employees have to understand that uh, the tags are legible and understandable by, by all affected, authorized, and other employees. These tags, um, a lot of people sell these tags. They have to be made of materials that are going to withstand the environmental conditions encountered. So if it's a very damp place, um, you know, you're going to want a plastic tag, which most of them are. And they're securely attached to the isolating devices so they can't be inadvertently or accidentally uh, removed or detached. So they have to be um, strong enough to stay on the uh, device. All right, what do we have to train employees in when we're do talking about lockout tagout? Uh, they have to be trained initially or prior to performing service or maintenance on equipment or a system. Uh, of course, as needed for employee profi proficiency, we, that's kind of been something that we've talked about throughout this webcast. Uh, you know, 
employees, sometimes they tend to forget things in their training. So you have to stay on top of that. And then when there's new or revised training procedures, uh, all of that makes a lot of sense. And it's also very interesting that there is no annual training requirements for lockout takeout. So what about documentation? Again, as we say in the safety world, if it's not written down, it didn't happen. So uh, there is training documentation that's needed. The regulation says that you have to certify that employee training has been accomplished and is being kept up to date. And here it says the certification must contain the employee's name and the dates of training. And with that, I'm gonna turn it back over to Trisha. Thank you, Mark. So before we move on to the uh, Q&A session, I'd like to once again uh, mention the sponsor of today's webcast, JJ Keller Training. Whatever your company's needs, JJ Keller Training can help with 24-7 access to hundreds of online courses and streaming video training across multiple industries. If you miss the opportunity or you're, uh, you've joined us late, uh, we're offering a free white paper of your choice when you request more information on JJ Keller training. So use the poll on your screen and we'll be happy to send you that white paper. And now I think we're ready for questions. Alan, back to you. Well, thank you so much, Trisha and Mark. Uh, really appreciate it. Uh, before we start the q and I wanna remind everyone about the evaluation survey we're asking you to complete. The survey will open in a different screen after this webinar. Your input is important because it'll help us improve our future webcast. Okay, let's get to some questions. So Trisha, are, is, is, does OSHA require the um, employers to provide Hep B vaccinations to retail workers who handle cleaning slash trash, trash removal tasks? Great question. So when it comes to bloodborne pathogens, um, like I said, uh, OSHA does not uh, give us a list of those tasks or, or jobs that um, have occupational exposure. So the employer's going to need to make a determination. Generally speaking, um, trash removal and cleaning in a general sense um, may not have occupational exposure. You, you as an employer are gonna have to uh, look at the job, see if there's any potential for con or anticipated reasonable contact uh, with blood or other potentially infectious materials uh, as part of that job task, um, those job duties. So um, once you determine yes, there's occupational exposure there, then the vaccination uh, requirement does kick in. So uh, it's kind of a wishy-washy answer. It's going to take a determination on your part. Sorry about that. Thank you, Alan. No problem. Uh, Mark, this question is for you. I, I would assume that Teams or an instant messenger application would be considered available access to a trainer uh, during bloodborne pathogens training with the additions of some computer-based training? Well, I think this is an excellent question and, and it doesn't just apply to bloodborne pathogens. Uh, as we mentioned, you as an employer, if you're providing training, have to be available immediately to answer any questions. Uh, and as we said, email, unless somebody's there and monitoring that. So a phone call would be effective, but. I am or teams, if that is on, and just like we're doing now, uh, this meeting and everybody's listening in, I see no problem with that as long as the trainer is there and can immediately respond to the uh, questioner. Again, I've this is the first I've heard of using this, but I think it's a good idea. Tricia, what do you think about that? Is that something you've sure. Yeah, uh, unfortunately, at this time, OSHA hasn't kept up with technology, so we haven't heard an official interpretation on that. But um, as they explained with email, if the trainer is available to answer those emails promptly upon the question coming in, um, that would be sufficient. So if in um, your 
online chat or your your live, you know, video, if you will, um, a, a, a trainee asks a question and that trainer's right there on the spot to answer that, uh, that's timely. So, uh, you know, you can certainly contact OSHA consultation with your question to be certain to confirm that, but uh, that sounds like it's on the right track. Okay, our next question, uh, Tricia, does a bloodborne pathogens plan have to be separate from an infection control plan? Uh, well, first of all, um, federal OSHA does not require an infection control program. Um, perhaps some states, state plan states do. So at this point, uh, federally, the bloodborne pathogen plan uh, is a requirement if you have one or more employees with occupational exposure. Um, so when OSHA comes for an inspection, they're going to be looking for your bloodborne pathogen plan. And so if you merge that plan with other plans, um, if that makes sense to you, by all means, go ahead and do that. Um, you know, uh, it kind of makes sense to me that maybe an infection control plan has some of the same approaches and maybe this and and so maybe you want to mix your plan with the bloodborne pathogen exposure control plan. But I hesitate only because, um, well, you can go ahead and do it, but be sure that you cover all the required elements for the exposure control plan for bloodborne pathogen. And you may want to provide some kind of cross-reference uh, to uh, direct uh, anyone reading that combo plan so that they can find those bloodborne pathogen exposure control plan elements. Our next question uh, for Mark, can a forklift driver be removed from operating without discrimination if they disclose a serious medical issues? <clears throat> this is a really good question and we get it. Um, this is a combination HR uh, OSHA thing. You gotta be really careful here uh, because if they're disclosing it, um, I would discuss this with, with your HR department on a case-by-case -case basis. There are a lot of variables here that you have to be really careful of. And I don't wanna give you the wrong advice. In a case like this, we would always recommend contacting your HR department and getting information from them. It depends what they disclose, that type of thing. Uh, Tricia, this question's for you. Do employees that want an N95 due to COVID need fit testing or just Appendix D? I would definitely direct um, the, the person to a, a part of the regulation that uh, deals with that voluntary use of respirators. 1910.134, uh, <laughs> paragraph C, as in cat number two. In there, it explains all the requirements for voluntary use. And there are some exceptions for what uh, OSHA calls filtering face pieces or dust masks that are voluntary use. Uh, but I, I hesitate to answer that in complete, completely um, because C2 has quite a bit there, including, as you said, uh, Appendix D uh, as a, an information point to share with the, the employee. Trisha, another question for you. Is there a definitive list of chemical hazard categories such as um, corrosive, flammable liquids, et cetera, to use as a basis for comprehensive HASCOM training? Yes. Uh, so in the HASCOM regulation, 1910.1200, uh, there are um, a number of definitions. There's a definition section in paragraph C. And there, uh, OSHA defines the term hazardous chemical, and there are several terms there, and all of those terms that qualify as a hazardous chemical are further defined, including physical hazards and health hazards. And so you will find, as you look at those series of definitions, all of those chemical categories. Another place to look also would be Appendix C, uh, that's as in CAT of 1910.1200. Those are your labeling provisions. And in there, they go over each and every category. Um, and, and, and so that's another good place to look. 
Uh, one last question for Mark. Is your training available in different languages? Yes, we have quite a bit of training in Spanish. Uh, as we found that that is the greatest non-English category that uh, we get asked. So quite a bit of our training is available in Spanish. Yes, I, I would add to that, Mark, that, um, yeah, we do have quite a number of our training um, programs available in different languages, mostly Spanish, uh, and, and even um, uh, some online courses in French Canadian, something to keep in mind. So good question. Well, thank you so much to you both. Unfortunately, we have run out of time. I'm sorry we didn't get to everyone's questions, but unanswered questions will be forwarded to today's sponsor. Once again, we also hope you take the time to share your feedback through our survey. This ends today's Safety and Health Magazine webcast. I'd like to thank Trishka Hodkovich, Mark Stromey, our sponsor, JJ Keller, and of course, everyone who joined us today. Take care and be safe.